Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. And you are joining me at the tail end of my vacation, which I am sharing with my pal and regular panelist, Julian Rabbit Murdoch. Hey, how's it going? Not quite evening. A little early to call it evening. But maybe you're listening to this one. It's evening. That's that's true. Well, it's it's, it's late afternoon. The, su- the, the sun is low in the sky. Right. And, and so it's a perfect time for gentlemen to sit and talk of strategy and want destruction. Absolutely. And uh, we've already been doing a bit of that today. Uh, we've each taken our turn with bombing Germany in uh, Duel in the Dark, uh, which is itself a scenario based on uh, – the British night bombing campaign against Germany in the uh, Mm -hmm. later stages of World War II. And, you know, we sort of spent a good portion of this weekend, the two of us, talking about, uh, you know, what we want from good scenario design, what, uh, you know, what sort of uh, design challenges uh, scenario scenario design uh, poses. So I guess, you know, I wanted to to start with, um, you know, something we return to a lot on the show, and you brought up a couple times this weekend, Julian, is that... You know, the, 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 I'd say frustrating tendency for a lot of scenarios to sort of turn into a puzzle with very, uh, you know, rote paths and, uh, you know, solutions. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's somewhat inevitable. I think particularly when you're dealing with a computer game, right? When you're dealing with a computer game where you've got sort of a limited, limitedly creative AI, I think that's inevitable, right? StarCraft doesn't become a puzzle to be solved when you're playing competitively versus other people because the puzzle you're trying to solve is other people, right? And, and you know, likewise, chess isn't a, a puzzle game when you're playing it against other people. But if you're playing it solo, it that you play puzzles. That's what you do. You, you play chess puzzles. And I think that uh, a lot of computer games fall into that pattern. And, you know, we've been playing a lot of war game stuff. And I keep coming back to thinking about Panzer General and Panzer Corps uh, and, and how... As much as I love Panzer Corps in particular, I thought the reboot was fantastic, it really is a puzzle game. It really is, here's your limited material, here's what the enemy is going to be laid out like. There's not randomness per se in like how the enemy is going to be deployed. They're sort of set scenarios. And once you sort of cracked it, it's not really all that hard anymore. Unity of Command, I think, um, you know, a game we also talk a ton about, also has that similar quality, but I think because the moving pieces, right, the, the the things that you're trying to suss out are so different than Unity of Command than in a traditional war game, I'm willing to sort of forgive that. Plus, I still really suck at it. So I clearly haven't, like, mastered it or, or cracked the puzzles well. Well, I sort of feel like with Unity of Command that there's just enough uh, wiggle room in terms of performance as to... Uh, in Unity of Command, to unlock certain later scenarios, like in Panzer Corps, you have to hit a certain threshold of victory. But I feel like Unity of Command gives me enough, um, you know, it gives me enough freedom to go screw up and still sort of like get some sort of success out of a scenario right. that I keep coming back. Whereas, you know, what you know, what ultimately I think chased me away from Panzer Corps a lot was this sense of, um, you know. Five turns into a scenario. It's clear, like, yep, well, this I'm is not this, win this, this one. Is broke, yeah. so I'm going to start over. And you, you do that. You do that often enough, and eventually, I think that 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 gets a little old, especially because the sort of method by which you sort of find the solution for for the scenario in Panzer Corps is kind of identical from scenario to scenario, right? Like your first couple times through, you're sending units out, and you're just finding you're out. You're just trying to figure the, out where the hell everything is. Yeah, right. where are the traps. So, which means that fog of war doesn't really matter because you're never playing it through once. You're going to play it through twelve times. So, fog of war only 
really matters the first time because there's not there isn't like a random setup and that's where again i think it comes back to the difference between playing human opponents versus playing ai opponents i think it's very difficult to make scenario based war games on the on in video games that really have that freshness so it's interesting. So sort of coming off of our show last week on uh, Take Command Second mm-hmm. Manassas, uh, unintentionally I find that this is really the only game I've been playing for the last week on PC <laughs> as well. Uh, I, I enjoyed our classic game analysis so much that uh, I basically shit-canned the present and uh, have been you know, spending the last week you know, playing a nine-year-old war game just you know, over and over again. And one of the really great things there is um, you know, there's a lot of AI scripting in that game. Mm-hmm. And so... While the scenarios are semi-rote, like the order of battle isn't going to change, it seems to me, and, and maybe maybe I'm you know misreading what's going on in this game, but I've played a few scenarios several times, and there are definitely like variants as to what can happen that I don't think the AI is coming up with on its own. I think these are pre-scripted right. you know, choices it can make. Or it's somewhat randomized or something. Right, yeah. but but it's got a menu of choices that it's sort of you know choosing from, like, today I'm going to try a flank march and intercept the reinforcements coming up the road. And, you know, the fact the AI, you know, the, the fact that the script can follow these different paths means that the scenario can have wildly divergent outcomes uh, fr- from, you know, the same basic start you know starting positions which which is really exciting like you know one scenario that i played a lot was just basically a standard meeting engagement you know general jackson is trying to uh you know get his forces up and concentrate them and then push across this field and destroy union corps and you know the the third or fourth time i played that scenario in every other time it was just a matter of like sort of you know taking a strong position waiting for my reinforcements to arrive and, you know, go fighting a straightforward battle. The fourth time I played the scenario, um, a Union division just materialized on a road all the way behind my lines and got between me and my reinforcements and just this huge cat, like, it was at a stroke. It was totally unlike, you know, the other right. three times I'd played. Well, that's cool. That's very cool. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, th- that's something that... um I think something that, that's something I sometimes feel is lacking is that a lot of times the scenario is designed really to play out maybe just one way. Right. Uh, right. You have to take this bridge and there's no way you're not going to take the bridge and you may choose to scout the bridge first or to wait until your engineers can blow up the bridge or whatever, but you're just going to take the bridge. That's how you win the game. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, if, if you're playing, you know, if you're playing the first scenario of memoir 44 or something, you know, Pegasus bridge, like there's a way to assault that position. Like there, there are things you're going to do in that scenario uh, once you know what's going on, and you're going to do it every time you play that scenario. Uh, w- what's exciting in, in Take Command is just that um, th- there's there is enough slack in that scenario. It's big enough. It's sprawling enough that there's room for a lot of different things to happen. Where, whereas I think a lot of times the scenario is sort of like it's so zoomed in on one particular problem that you do get that you do that get that complete right. puzzle feeling. I, I think that one of the tricks to this, and we're sort of blending the conversation about you know video games and and sort of traditional war games, tabletop war games a, a bit, but that's what we do. Um, 
you know, one thing that, that I think solves this problem and makes a very static scenario infinitely replayable is when there's some level of randomness to it, when there's some level of, uh, you know, creating a great story from come from behind victories or, gosh, I never thought I was going to win with Lancers here or whatever. Um, because I was thinking about this scenario problem and I came back to, um, we were talking about a few acres of snow, which we yes. talked about on the show a few times ago. In many ways, that's an entire board game. That's one scenario. And you can say that about about a lot of sort of standard, uh, particularly sort of war gamey crossovers, where you're not dealing with hexes that you build scenarios right. on, but they're they're more like you know uh, more European or Ameritrash type board games. They often really look like they're just one scenario. Um, but the reason why a game like Few Acres of Snow is is so satisfying and you keep playing it over and over again is because of that variability. Not only are you playing against a human opponent, and that adds that level of un- the unknown. But the you know your order of battle isn't known every time, right? You're not going to get the same cards. You're going to have to make different decisions. So while the map may be similar, and there may always be strategies that are favored, you know, everybody's going to go to Halifax in the first turn. I mean, you know, there are just ways to play that game. There are definitely it's sort of like standard openings in chess, right? Um, it, it's not static and boring because there's that variability. And two other games that we've played recently that I think don't have that are Dungeon Command from TSR from Watsi, mm-hmm. um, which is a beer and pretzels miniatures war game, uh, super simple. And then we just sp- spent the last couple hours playing Duel in the Dark, which is an older game from uh, Z-Man Games. Did not sell very well. It went very cheap on on uh, various you know game sites in the last couple of weeks. So I picked up a copy for ten or fifteen bucks. You know, fantastic bits, beautiful design. Uh, but one of the things that I think that game suffers from is there is no randomness whatsoever, which means that you once you once everybody's put everything out on the board, there's not that much decision making, and therefore it's a it's you've set the puzzle in motion. And it's just a question of whether the defender did better than the attacker in sussing out the puzzle up front. Yeah, it's interesting. Both those games you just mentioned are kind of, really go out of their way to eliminate luck. Um, as as you know, as a factor. Yeah, they you know, might as well print it on the box. I mean, they make such a big deal out about it. Yeah, yeah. There there is no luck in this game, and you know it's weird because you know I hate luck because Lady <laughs> Luck and I uh, ha- have gone through an ugly divorce, uh, you know, brutal custody battle for the kids, and uh, we just don't talk anymore. Um, and, and so usually, I, I one of my frustrations with your with your average uh, you know tabletop strategy game or war game is just that um. You know, the, my my view of luck is like it's it's you know luck is there to steal, uh, you know st- you know steal from your skill uh, right. to, to ruin your life, and I find that like in these games that have eliminated luck, I sort of like have this crestfallen feeling at the end of a game where I'm like everything felt kind of preordained yeah, from the very first yes yeah. yeah. And and this this one game duel in the dark is even worse in that regard because you pre-program the bombing run, right? So the, in that in this game, it's you know the I suppose it's one of the least morally defendable war games you play. You're just oh bl- you're just bombing German cities. You're just firebombing everything you can as the British player, and you have to pre-program with a set of cards the exact route that your bombers are going to take. And there's no there's no changing that in the base game. It's just that's what happens. And so there's some movement around 
around, you know, fighters trying to defend the bomber, et cetera. But it's 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 entirely pre-programmed, but it doesn't have the chaos of something like a robo-rally where that pre-planning process often goes awry in hilarious ways. This is just what happens. The bombers are going to Dresden or Hamburg or Berlin. And they're going to get there because there's no unit elimination. So it's just a question of how many points you sacrifice along the way and how beat up you get effectively. Yeah, you said you said at the end it felt like you 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 know after we both set I'd set up my defenses and you'd set up your uh, your, your bomber route. You said you almost felt like you'd like you wanted to push a button and just let it run. And that's exactly how I felt because you know the last scenario we played where now we kind of understood the system, and I felt like what you did was almost a proof of concept. You know, as to whether or not you could just completely shatter the game beyond repair, <laughs> uh, and and basically, I think you did because uh, you showed this very potent strategy where if I just ran the edge of the map, but dropped my bombs on the nearest German city and ran home as fast as possible. There, thereby, I never even went into a space you had ground defenses. No, which, you you were you were over, you were over you were over German controlled soil. I think for like two hexes, maybe no, maybe. just one, just just, just one? yeah, it was I bombed Hamburg on the coast. No, it's not on the coast, though. It's one, it is one, one hexen. It's oh, one hexen. Okay. So you did have to fly over two. So I guess if I'd anticipated that and I just, like, piled all my defenses in there, I could have, you know, I would have I would have. But again, the entire... But, but because it's all preordained setup, it's not like you could see where I was going and then move to react. Oh, I figured yeah. out exactly what you're doing by your second move. And I was like, I, I have <laughs> no right. way Game of over. reacting to this. Game over. I mean, to some extent, I think that that is a problem with any of these games that have sort of big elaborate setup processes based around scenarios ASL suffers from this in spades where you know if you know there there's often very convoluted and tricky objectives hold this building in this hex for x number of squares or escort this truck over here whatever and if if the defender in those scenarios just sets up poorly uh, you know the game's pretty much over. Um, now the difference there is there's so much luck. I, I'm, I can hear Bruce rolling over right now. Um, you know because everything is determined by a die roll, an advanced squad leader. There's still always the chance that you're just going to roll super well for the rest of the game and things will be fine. Um, but you know the the answer ASL's answer to luck in those situations is well if you just roll enough dice, it, it all averages out and you roll an awful lot of freaking dice in ASL. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and I do feel like uh, you know part of what ASL has going for it, I think, is there. There's so much history there at this point that like if there's a dead scenario, like people have figured it out. Yeah, and, and like it's just nobody it, plays. Nobody it. plays it. Nobody right. plays it. And uh, if it's not a dead scenario, like it, you know, it, if it's a scenario that's like recommended to you, it's it's going to work on some level. And, and the right. game really does. Um, you know, I I kind of feel like there are enough variables you can fiddle with. In ASL, right? That <laughs> a few too many variables. You <laughs> yeah, can that's, that's a whole other issue. But but there's enough stuff you can mess with in that game that it very rarely feels. Even if the scenario is very demanding and brutal, I very rarely get this feeling of um, helplessness, lack of agency in ASL. Right. Because you know, hey, when you're setting up for you know to assault that building, you've got you know your base of fire squad and your assault team over here. Um, you know, like how this assault goes, there's gonna be a dice roll, yeah. Right. But you you are you are bending that that curve so that you know the chances are you're going to storm that building, right. and, and that and that's very satisfying. Whereas, um, oddly enough, in the in these games without luck, in a weird way, it's like they replaced it's like they replaced luck with predestination, I guess. And what you know, we might have been in charge with in charge of it. You know, based on how we set things up and what well, order we played things. If you're gonna if you're gonna remove luck, you have to give the players an awful lot of options, right? I mean, if you remove luck, 
you almost have to add complexity because without that complexity, it's just going to get really dull, right? And, um, you know, I think there, there are plenty of games that get it right. I actually think Dungeon Command, which, you know, which is, again, very Beer and Pretzels miniatures tactics game, um, I think it does a pretty good job at that because you do have a lot of options. There are definitely strategic choices you can make all the way through. And even if you get pushed to your back against the wall, you still have something you can do. You might pull a card out of the deck that's, uh, you know, that, that could help. So there's just enough luck in a card draw to make it worthwhile. Um, so I think that, you know, adding complexity often solves that problem. I mean, another game um, where I think they've minimized luck, although compared to something like ASL, or maybe they've maximized luck. I don't know. Uh, Tide of Iron, right? Still dice roll. Definitely still dice rolls involved. Right? That's how combat still happens. Um, and you're, you're rolling probably fewer times in a game than and fewer dice in a game than you would with ASL. So I guess that actually increases the importance ASL gives of you luck. so many little D6 that like, you can barely get your hand yeah, around. Exactly. Your... Or, or even playing like tabletop 40K. Yeah. You're rolling literally hundreds of dice a game. You just call them all three and a half, and it doesn't really matter anymore. Um, but, you know, in Tide of Iron, I think that they've they've threaded that line of keeping it just complex enough to be interesting, but lowered the complexity level versus something like SL to make it approachable. You know, the Tide of Iron is – I'm glad you brought that up because when it comes to the way that game structures its scenarios, and this is – first of all, cards on the table here – I tend to lose this game a lot, <laughs> which is um, why I like it so much. Yeah, like, I, like so. You, so you got to remember, like, this is a little bit through the filter uh, of an embittered and frustrated, uh, you know, World War II wannabe uh, company commander. But that, but that that being said, <laughs> I I kind of feel like with Tide of Iron, uh, a lot of these scenario designs are really tight. You know, the game is never longer than like ten turns, right? Um, and and often six. I mean, often very six quick. Six seems yeah. to be yeah. Five six seems to be about the average. Ten is like really long. But the way the way it, it's sort of structured to work, uh, I find each scenario is that uh, you know to to borrow a, ter- a term from chess, uh, whether or not you're up in material or not is immaterial in Tide of Iron. Right. Um, and that's and that's really. This, this I think, is where I start to get really uncomfortable with a lot of scenario design, is that, uh, you know, kind of what appeals to me about a lot of war games and strategy games is, like, how you use your resources, you know? Like, are you doing the best possible? Are you, are you taking your units? Are you inflicting higher losses than you're suffering? Um, and in Tide of Iron, a lot of those scenarios depend on you kind of ignoring, you know, the score, basically. And just sort of saying, okay, the entire the entire scenario just hinges on sprinting across this map and grabbing this one building with one unit. As long as I've got somebody parked on this victory location at turn six, I um, win. Yeah. nothing else matters. And I get there's there's a sort of there, there's a sort of frustrating artifice I think with a lot of scenarios like that. Like how many times well, have you come to? They're trying to map asymmetry into the game, and that's I think the tricky part, right? Because. Uh, you know, let's face it, most battles are actually strategically pretty boring, 
right? Meaning if you, if you go back, I mean, uh, I, uh, for your birthday, I gave you that giant book of, of battle maps, yes. right? And it's, you know, all these classic old illustrated maps of everything from Thermopylae on forward. And you look at the unit positions and you look at the force layouts, the, and these are all obviously after the fact, and they all look fairly predestined. It's like, oh, yep, these guys are hosed. I mean, and it's, and when it's not predestined, when you, when you can look at that map ahead of time and say, gosh, this looked like it was a real nail biter. Generally, the smart move was to sit there, right? The yeah. guy who moved first, the guy who actually, you know, tried to get his pikemen to run across the open field and engage is generally the guy who gets slaughtered, right? It's Pickett's Charge all over again. And and that's that makes for pretty boring encounters. So what's interesting in scenario design is often asymmetry and, and you know, looking at the loser's perspective. And the way you create scenarios where the loser wins to balance it out is by having to ignore material, right? Because in the real world, right. in the real world, the guy with more guys alive at the end of the battle is generally the guy who won, right? That's how history is going to say the battle went. But in a on a tactical basis, it's more interesting to say, well, if you can just hang out in this town for five turns and have one guy left standing on this critical location, right. we're calling that the equivalent of a victory yeah. because really you should have been slaughtered in yeah. three. You're not going to hold the Alamo, but if you can make it take longer than the Alamo took to fall, then congratulations, yeah, you have exactly. won the Alamo. So, so I get why they do it, and I do find that interesting. I, I enjoy those kinds of scenarios. Um, I, I th- sometimes I think I enjoy the Memoir 44 version of that better, which is they, you know, a lot of uh, Richard Borg's scenarios in Memoir 44 and all the Command and Colors games, they have a legitimate win-loss expectation. Like they'll, they'll even say 85% of the time the Germans win right. this encounter. And so the challenge there is to, you know, play it back and forth and you're, you know, you're never playing it once. Yeah, and the score carries over. So you're never playing it once. And so there it's really a question of who makes the best of a bad situation or who takes the best advantage of the good situation and really routes the, you know, routes the bad guys. So I get that. Um, but I see what you're saying, right? It, it can be very frustrating to play a game and, and realize that you need to do something that's non-material based, um, that's sort of positional or thematic to win um it can be it can be frustrating but then again you're bad at it so i like winning you winning you like winning when you you like winning me i like like winning you i I want to (laughs) rob i like winning when you fail at those is what i meant to say well yeah i I think it it taps into something that i'm I'm, you know i i I think i'm kind of bad at in a lot of ways which is immediately like sort of picking out what is uh you know what is the correct way to tackle this puzzle right where uh, you, you have a sense for how you know the, the combat is supposed to function and what smart tactics are, but a lot of times these scenarios don't let you do it by the book. Right. They, they're saying no, you've got to you've you've got to risk losses here, and right. just plunge through. But at, at the same time, that that is sort of just for me personally, that is sort of counterintuitive enough to my understanding of of the, of the subject matter, but also kind of what brings me to war games that. In every single one of those scenarios, I, I get this really um, constricted feeling, almost like around like turn, like around turn two or three, where like I'm just coming up on the halfway point of the scenario, and it starts to dawn on me, like, okay, everything I've been doing, I'm just I'm just wasting time now. Well, and that's and when I've you put, that's when you push the button and reset, right? Yeah. yeah well, if it was a PC game, yeah, but tabletop, <laughs> uh, you know, certainly. 
you you sort of have to see things through and and, and give your opponent the satisfaction of watching you lose. Yeah, but, yeah, and and I think particularly because of the time investment, you know, if you get two people sitting there playing War of the Ring, you know, again, a, a, a sort of single scenario game. Um, yes, but the perfect scenario. It, it's a fantastic scenario, but you get an hour and a half into that game, it's generally pretty clear which way it's going. My experience has been. I don't know. I, I think... Um, I mean, often often it is a nail-biter. They, I mean, we've talked about that before. Often those games do come down to, you know, two steps away from Mordor, one city ready to left to fall. Uh, you know, so yes, it can be a nail-biter, but when it goes wrong, it goes horribly wrong very quickly. And and it's tough to then just throw up your hands and say, ah, Sauron loses this one. I did it to you. I walked a game on you once. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. It was. I mean, you were getting the worst. You had the worst series of draws I've ever seen at the start of that and game. And rolled every die wrong. And, yeah, yeah, it was just it was just debacle. Um, but I, I think there it's there, there. I mean, there you've got the scenario that where the asymmetry is in the victory conditions, and so if one if one challenge is going wrong for you you can start to push on the other. And I think that, that creates an well, interesting tension. Again, it's it's adding a little bit of complexity to it to give you more than the single way to play the scenario out. Right, because if you took out, if you took out like the uh, trying to send the Fellowship to destroy the One Ring, if you took that track out, what you've got is a very lopsided war game scenario. Right, and, uh, and there have been very lopsided sort of War of the Ring style games. I mean, there's an old Avalon Hill game, you know, chip-based war game that was just, you know... It didn't work. You know, when you when you brought up nail biters, though, I think this you know that sort of takes me back to games like Tide of Iron or Panzer Corps a little bit, which is, um, you know, those those games are are very good at sort of sustaining the tension right to the bitter end. Um, but I kind of you know we we've talked before about like the the problem of the runaway victory, and I think this is a bigger problem for like sort of open ended four X games where it's just you know by the halfway point. Everything's kind of on autopilot, and it's I, yeah. I mean, any game where there's a resource engine, right? Yeah. I mean, that's again, that's that's the the other thing you do in a, a scenario based game to make it different all the time is you put the player in charge of material, yeah. right? And so you look at a game like StarCraft, right? You could say that multiplayer games of StarCraft are just the same scenario over and over again, but again, because you're dealing with human beings and you're really dealing with your own resource, you know, management problems, uh, they can go a lot of different ways. Well. And I think it's, it's crucial also, like, that people have the ability to tap out, right? That I think one problem with, you know, a game like Civilization, for instance, which is not, you know, the, the problem of having the runaway victory there is that the AI is just going to sit around and wait for you to win if you're, if you're easily winning. It's, do, you find, do you find in a game, I mean, it's interesting you bring up Civilization, right? You know, there are definitely scenarios in Civilization there have been for a yes. long time, right? You know, win from this position, win from here, or even like SimCity, right? They, all those scenarios. Do you ever play those? Do you find them interesting? I often don't. With Civ, Gods, and Kings, I did. Uh, did, you play, did you play any of the scenarios? No. So, so you, should, you should play, did you play Gods and Kings at all? No, I haven't played Gods and Kings um, at you all. Need to, you need to make some time for that. Uh, with your copious amounts of, yeah, of free time, um, but I do feel like Gods and Kings actually um, is maybe the first Civilization I played where I actually was engaged by the scenarios. Uh, there, there's sort of a Fall of the Roman Empire scenario that is pretty good. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty cool, like you know, slow fighting retreat uh, in the face of overwhelming odds. Uh, there's a really cool like steampunk scenario, that, although that's almost more like a mod. Right. But those are those are unusual because um, 
I feel like they are properly designed scenarios, uh, particularly like the the Fall of Rome, where it's like there is a clear challenge here before me, and it's not like a standard game of Civilization. This is a more tactical, uh, you know, tactical or operational level war game puzzle that I'm trying to solve here. Um, whereas I think what what causes scenarios to fail in previous civs, and especially for a game like SimCity, is that um. You know, it's really just the, the base game, just starting from the middle of someone else's game, exactly. right? It might be modeled right. on the real world, but, uh, you know, I remember there's a Civilization game, you know, where, you know, can you fix Detroit in 1980 Yeah, or exactly. Like that? And those just feel like, oh, I'm in the middle of somebody else's screwed up game, and now yeah. it's, oh, and, you know, can I put out the fires before the monster uh, comes? You yeah, know? <laughs> and, I mean, and, and those games are good enough in, as it is at generating screwed up games that you have to, you know, find your way out of. Like, it, 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 it's sort of solving a problem that you didn't, you know, it's a, it's a solution in search of a problem. Uh, right. And so I, I tend to think that that stuff that stuff falls apart. Um, I, I I am much more inclined to just sort of build my city and then uh, unleash the monsters on it right. in SimCity. Yeah, and and you know again I think it's uh, you know I, th- I I keep coming back to this, but I think it is somewhere on the sliding scale of complexity, right? Games like Civ and SimCity are so complex that you don't need scenarios to sort of spice it up and make it more interesting. Um, you know, scenarios for me are almost always historical. I mean, yeah, there are plenty of non-historical games that use scenarios. But, you know, when I'm thinking about scenarios, I'm thinking about things like Tide of Iron or Panzer Corps or right. Command and Colors games or, you know, Battle Cry or, you know, uh, you know, any number of historical war games out there, whether it's ASL or something else. Well, and, you know... It's worth discussing, too, the, the sorts of things that tend to be brought up as scenarios, the, the things we play over and over again. Like the fighting retreat, like like the hold the building until the reinforcements arrive. I mean, there are definitely tropes of scenarios that, you know, and there's some that I enjoy and there's some that I don't. And I don't feel like I'm learning much more from these scenarios anymore. That's part of the problem. It's like I've been playing a fighting retreat since the like, isn't it? You know, isn't, isn't a fighting retreat the very first ASL module? Uh, I, I think so. Yeah. Like the Germans are trying to catch up to the Russians. Yeah, and destroy exactly. Them they I escape. mean, it's it, that's it, it's just I feel like it's been done so many times now that like you can make it happen in ancient Rome or you can make it happen in France or you can make it happen in outer space. And I just sort of feel like once I know the unit construction on that, I'm either going to do well or I'm not, but I'm not learning anything by playing that scenario. Good historical scenarios. I find um, like, what's the, uh, what's the ASL expansion with the giant factories? Um, Oh, red barricades. Red barricades, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I haven't played a ton of Red Barricades. I don't own it. I've played uh, games of it on other people's maps. And um, I felt like I really – I learned about the history of what was going on there. I learned different tactics, right, different unit tactics. That was an entirely unique experience based around a scenario. That seems to me where scenarios can really shine. Okay, so what's so what's ASL doing to spice up familiar familiar – Wargaming challenges. I mean, what does Red Barricades do? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, first of all, it's presenting terrain that's totally unique, right? You're doing fighting in and around all these enormous buildings. You're dealing with cover far more than you do other places. Lots of hidden unit stuff going on. So these are all stuff that, it's all stuff that's in the rules. It's not that they introduced a billion new rules in that. Um, but you're, you're, you're having to learn the game in a different way, right? And you're dealing with different kinds of units 
differently. Um, so I, I mean, I just found that interesting. Um, whereas, you know, I can't really remember the last time I learned something interesting playing a Civil War game. I, I feel like I played those scenarios through so many times. Some of them, but I, I think I think when when I think of like Civil War games I've played, I think one one problem that I tend to run into is is I feel like I don't just see similar sorts of scenarios again and again. I see the exact same scenario <laughs> again and again. Right, because you're playing Pickett's Charge again. So well, you are literally playing the same scenario. You're just playing it in a different rule system. Right. And I, I kind of, you know, it's weird. Playing Take Command, um, you know, what, what, what what's funny there is that you know, it, it kind of falls, you know, it, it's kind of overshadowed really quickly by the Battle of Antietam. Uh, so so I think it tends to get overlooked and everything. But I, I, I kind of feel like there, there's this, there's this there, like, designers tend to be inexorably drawn toward these huge moments in military history. You know, like, yeah, Pickett's Charge, uh, you know, the Bloody Lane in Antietam, uh, you know, holding a little round top, uh, D-Day. And and the and the and the problem is in these big Titanic clashes, what a lot of times what you don't get is is any sort of dynamism. Uh, what you what you were talking about earlier, where you know it it can sometimes pay to just like be parked somewhere, and so the you know there's not there, it, like one side of that scenario is going to be sort of forced into this really passive conservative sort of play that's not going to be terribly interesting interesting to, to play. And the other side is going to be locked into some sort of like insane assault against terrible right. odds. It's the, I mean, Normandy is the classic example. I played Normandy in you know card game form. I've played it in first person shooters. I you know how many times I f- I feel like I could draw you maps of the beaches from memory. I've yeah. played those scenarios so many times, and there's no way to make the German side of that a particularly interesting game. No, it's it's an awful scenario. Yeah. Yeah, uh, because the German scenario, the German side is okay. Like roll that, roll that pillbox, yeah, and uh, like, yep, killed another American squad. Good luck with the other fifty. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's just there's no way to make that particularly interesting. Now, I, somebody should prove me wrong. Send me the, the send me the link to the game that you think you know makes playing the Germans on D Day phenomenal. Uh, maybe it exists, and maybe it's about communication, and maybe it's about you know what's going on behind enemy lines or materiel or something that's not that direct confrontation. But again, it's a scenario that people play for historical reasons, which the first thousand times I played it might have been interesting. But at this point, I, I you could you could like assemble a, a dream team of designers to make the next Normandy game, and it would be really tough for me to be interested. Yeah, it's. I, I think you know I, you know bring up Normandy. I flash back to a, I think I want to say it was in the V for Victory series. Uh, this was old old PC gaming land. Uh, that might that might not have been it. It's been, it's been so long, but it was a game that took place. The, the game begins on July uh, on June fifth, uh, nineteen forty four. So, you know what you've got is it's the it's the, it's it's you know sort of the familiar setup, but like. The airborne, like the airborne drops, can still go wrong a million different ways from the way they happened historically, right? So your 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 air assault can completely get screwed up in new ways that are ahistorical. You can, I, I'm pretty sure, like you could sort of change where you were landing on the beaches, even, and sort of like, you know, that gave you enough freedom to, 
Um, but that's almost the, not a scenario the, at that point, right? Right. That's now you've got a game system based in Normandy where you can do twelve hundred different things, right? That's a little yeah. bit like, uh, you know, saying that civilization is you know ahistorical and saying that that somehow makes it. I, I don't know. That, to me, that just seems like a game design, not a scenario necessarily. That's true. I think when you when you um, you know, sort of when you, as as you zoom out, the idea of the scenario becomes a little more tenuous, like. Uh, with the operational art of war, um, you know, there's a lot of scenarios that are 80, 100 turns, you know, sometimes like 200 turns long. Right. Uh, you can fight pretty much the the entire Italian campaign in World War II over the course of like 100, 100 turns. And at that point, is it, yeah, it's a really, it's a great scenario. I love it to death. Is it still a scenario no, really it, when it's, it's basically, not. I mean, yeah, you're fighting an entire war? To me, to me, scenarios are almost always tactical and they they tend to limit the game set, right? I mean, to me, that's what defines whether you're playing a scenario or whether you're just playing a game, right? When you when you break out Tide of Iron to play something, you have to pick a scenario or you could just make one up. But there's no, there's no like base game that you can just turn on and start playing somewhere and try different strategies. But you are going to use a limited set of material from the box. You're going to have a specific set of rules of engagement which make that game unique from every other game you're going to play of Tide of Iron unless you play the same scenario over again, right? That's, that's not, that, that's what a scenario is to me, right? When you play Panzer Corps, Right, and you fire it up, and you play the you know fourteenth mission. You have these units, and you don't have those units. Right, you are not getting aircraft in this one, or you are getting you know the guys in the right. run around in the you know the guys who run around in the mountains or whatever they're called. Right, I mean the, that's what makes a scenario, and and that is what makes scenarios interesting. Right, is that you are playing with these slightly different limited sets of material. I was just sort of flashing back to um, you know the old close combat games, which again. You know, you fight over and over again over the same series of maps, really. But what's cool, well, there are, well, you can do scenarios where you just control like one engagement, for instance. A lot of what that game depends on is sort of like, uh, you know, links, like link scenarios where from the start of that campaign, you know, you, both sides go in pretty much always with the same force composition. Uh, and then the results of that first battle are going to play into the next and so maybe going to open up a new map. But, like, you know, th- this whole link, this whole back and forth, um, you know, I-, I think sort of goes a long way to sort of, you know, free me from a lot of my regular problems with, with scenarios in that... Um, well, because they feel like they're on a path. Yeah, and, and even if even if there are tricks to it, it's... There's just enough persistence in in close combat where I feel like, you know, if you take a tabletop scenario and you say, okay, I, you know, I won with, you know, I got four points, I got four victory points. Let's we turn it around and we play from different sides and who gets more points. But all of that, in a weird way, like the 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 contrivance of the point system there itself is sort of unsatisfying where sort of linked scenarios bring me back to that comfort zone I was talking about earlier where it's about like material and right. persistence and right. units carrying over like now yes now I it's took a campaign that, right? yeah and that's what and that's why campaigns work so well in for me in in strategy games on the pc i can't think of any on consoles um well, I guess even even tactics games like you know Advance Wars and stuff like that use that as a as, Valkyria Chronicles. Yeah, I mean, it's carryover. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a normal thing, and that does help you get more invested and makes the scenarios seem less artificial because the scenarios just sort of become 
sort of flavoring. It's like, oh, in this one, I have to stand on the bridge. And on this one, you know, the guys who have range attacks can't do anything because they're, you know, suppressed or whatever. And that makes that kind of play, particularly solo, much more interesting. On the tabletop, you know, there are plenty of war games that have campaign rules. Would like two percent of anybody has ever used them? I mean, you have to have who has the time. Yeah, who has the time, and you have to have a regular group, et cetera, and so on. And you it's, need and you need a table that's going to be kid proof and pet proof. And, right. I mean, it's like it's yeah. like it's like finding a great keeper league in fantasy football. Right. You yeah. got to have a good group of friends that are really going to show up week after week, year after right. year, for that to be the awesome experience that it could be. Um, and so it works great. Uh, as a way of stringing things together in some games. But, like, I mean, Panzer Corps, again, I feel like we're peeing on Panzer Corps. I love the game. Um, there, those linked scenarios and the experience of your units and stuff never really gelled for me. I never really got much investment in the connection between scenario to scenario to scenario in those campaigns. Well, and I, I, I kind of feel like they're the... I honestly, I do feel bad because like every time we bring up Panzer Corps on the show, after our first show on it, we we're like, "Hey, this is a great reboot of." Panzer I loved General. it. Yeah, and I since then, installed. every time we bring it up, it's, it's, it's like, like we're pulling a Mark it. Walker on it or something. <laughs> um, it's, that's a that's a verb. Now. That's a, that's a three moves aheadism. Um, no, it poor guy. <laughs> I, I still want to know where where uh, Heroes of Stalingrad is. Uh, and if that squad ever found that little girl, <laughs> I know that uh, poor little girl, but no, but get, you know, getting back to, you know, taking the Panzer Corps example, I think where, it, where it falls down a little bit is the way the scenarios are designed. It's not just the scenarios have one solution, but the scenarios all work because there are certain rules that just are designed to just punish the living shit out of you. And one of them is if your unit sort of blunders into another unit that it did not know was there, if there's a surprise encounter, whoever is being surprised gets completely rolled. Like it doesn't matter what that unit is. It's just ridiculous. Right. And so, so you have to scout or you have to know the map. Right. And you simply don't have enough slots in your army to scout effectively a lot of you times. You get one recon guy out there. Yeah, he gets and, blown and up. And his and radius of sight yeah. isn't very good. Right. And so it doesn't matter almost if you've got like really good veteran units because their veterancy and their ability to sort of like, you know, have higher strength attacks, better defense and everything, none of that really matters in the face of the constraints of the scenario. If they, you know, they're still just as dead if they get surprised or ambushed, they are still just as doomed if they attack a strong position from the wrong angle. There's one hex that you can actually attack from, and the right, rest you're doomed. Right. So I, I kind of feel like that that ends up undercutting it. Um, you know, whereas I, I think for, um, you know, you know, a little more open-ended games like Close Combat or something, if you've got like a really like ace machine gun team, that's going to matter. It changes again how you again. play it changes how you play the game from then on too. Yeah, right? because now yeah, cuz now your challenge, you know, now you've got this scenario that almost dynamically generates itself where your game is in part about getting this like this handful of units in position to do what they do best. Well, but but and that's part of the genius of something like Men at War Assault Squad is Assault Squad, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um because that game makes you feel like you've got those veteran units Every time you start the game, like yeah. brand new game, brand new guys, and you feel like, oh, and they don't is, improve. Yeah, they, 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 well, certainly I don't improve, so that doesn't make any difference. Um, but they, they, it helps you have that feeling of, 
you know, oh, I've got these guys. It's going to be great, even if they end up failing miserably because they have personality and they have uh, quirks, right? And they're not entirely predictable exactly what they're going to do. And so the scenarios there, while they, you know, you look at the maps and you look at the force layouts, it's same kinds of scenarios we're seeing in every other game. There's nothing genius. Really, I mean, for the cooperative game, the scenario design is, you know, I think, Really repetitive. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's nothing interesting there. But the game is still super interesting because the mechanics are so complex and interesting that it supports it. I mean, back to the complexity thing. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I think it, the snare design of that game, I, I think, does hold it back. Like, I, I think what, you know, I, and, I mean, no, we kind of, like, played the hell out of it. And then it kind and of And the best faded. scenario is the barbecue. <laughs> that's very true, uh, right? It, that's the most interesting scenario. Yeah, it, well, it really it, actually it's is. Actually kind of, it's actually more dynamic than a lot of the it other is. Scenarios. Right? There's it's actually like, objectives that you have to achieve, and kind of going out. You don't know you're an encounter, and yeah, and maybe it's to get a chicken, but it still works. But but so I, I sort of feel like there's an example of um, you know, if that game had maybe more than the same like assault these three trench lines and storm them and then you win the scenario and it gets progressively harder with each trench line it's all very it's all very repetitive and i think that's a game where um if you saw a little more creativity with mission structure um you know you you you'd get a lot more mileage out of it i think uh you know myth for instance is a game where you know there there was a, there was really genius use of of scenario design uh mission design to sort of both e- evoke the overline uh, you know overall story there was just enough persistence between missions that like your results mattered from one mission to the next but there wasn't so much persistence that um you could ever completely screw yourself you know like the missions were always completable if you had kind of a new force right you didn't need a veteran per se it just made your job a hell of a lot more fun and easier right I mean, I think I think Total War is another series that relies very heavily on the sort of linked scenario style of progression. I mean, you could call it that. I mean, it's really just sort of battles on battlefields. I feel like it's very hit or miss there. Sometimes it's just like, oh, look, it's another field. They put some trees in the corners. And sometimes it's actually interesting and you have to really think about, you know, exactly how things work. For, you know, for what's worth, I mean, I don't think any of us like Napoleon very much. No, 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 no. I didn't. You loved Napoleon. Oh my okay, god! Yes, okay. I I found actually there the scenario designs were kind of more interesting. Although I found the game hard to play and uh, constantly not doing what I wanted it to do, so I got very frustrated with it. But I found the strategic st- scenarios, the layouts, and the, the force compositions to be interesting. Well, yeah, like I mean, I think the uh, the the Egyptian campaign there was really cool. And again, the ba- the scenario campaign dichotomy it, it can be a little tricky, right? I, I think Total War does. Um, you know, be, because Total War is so dependent on these dynamically generated battles, where like two armies just meet, you don't know where, um, and that could, you know, that could that could be the, 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 that's the whole ball game, and it's got to be a battle that's playable in like a half hour, you know, and I and I think that's really that's really where it kind of becomes impossible to set up a lot of memorable uh, right. encounters in right. a lot of ways. I think Total War has always had this problem where the battles tend to become too rote. And I think that finally started getting solved a little bit with, um, a little bit with Napoleon and much more so with Shogun too. But I, I do kind of feel like, again, if you compare it to, um, you know, sort of a, sort of a bigger war game scenario, what can happen in a well-designed war game scenario, uh, can, can just be, you know, so diverse and so surprising, 
that you do get you do get those unusual puzzles. Uh, whereas I kind of feel like in in Total War, uh, th- there's very little puzzle to it. Frequently, uh, the the you know two armies meet in the field somewhere, and you just you know kind of duke it out. Right. I I feel like we'd be remiss if we ended without talking about our experience a couple of years ago with Steve Baker. Uh, sort of right. noted uh, Hasbro, Avalon Hill, and Games Workshop designer who did Hero Quest and Battle Masters and a billion other amazing strategy games. Who he ran a, and I think we've talked about it. At we least did a show on it. Yeah. yeah, we did a show on it um, way back when, like two years ago. Um, but for those of you who don't remember or have short attention spans like me, um, what he did was he set up a tabletop miniature Civil War game. Um, in which it was something of a Kobayashi Maru scenario where there was no expectation that the person who sat down to play the scenario for the first time was really even going to get more than five or ten minutes in, right. and you know it, it was it was a if I remember the scenario correctly it was it wasn't Civil War it was Revolutionary War mm-hmm. right am I right yes yeah. Revolutionary um, where you know you you basically were walking into an ambush and you had what but the the trick there was the unwinnable scenario became winnable because everybody got to play once and they got to watch everybody else play before them. And so you would learn how the ambush was going to unfold ahead of time. And you could try different things like, you know, okay, well, maybe we, before we uh, go in, we'll send scouts up and maybe we'll be able to negotiate with the people in the farmhouse, or maybe we'll be able to run up through the woods. And it, what that made for was what I was talking about before, a real learning experience because you got to see the scenario played out differently over and over again until finally somebody cracked the case and was able to, you know, survive the night or whatever the ultimate goal was. Was it you that, that you, you finally won? Yeah, I, I, out of four, uh, fourteen people projected to finish it, I, I, I aced it on the try seven. So I was, <laughs> took that took that experience away from everyone else because I just I worked that scenario. Uh, but you know, I've actually give I've spent a ridiculous amount of time thinking back over that experience and sort of like trying to figure out how like you would get a game out of that. Cause this was a great one-off. Right. But I keep wondering, like it was, it was such a transcendent sort of like wargaming role-playing experience. It was almost like, like military interactive fiction. Yes. And I, I, you know, I think what made that work so well is why it's almost unrepeatable if you're making a straight war game. Right. Because so much of that scenario was about, um, you know, it was about like how do you negotiate with the local Indian tribe? Uh, right. Where do you send your scouts? Uh, you know, what do you like? How do you handle your sort of unsteady militia uh, on the on the eve of a big battle? Uh, so, so a lot of these, you know, a, a lot of these uh, dilemmas were were very much like they weren't so, so much they, tactical. They were like RPG. To, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but at the same time, I do feel like. So much of what happened there was both incredibly new and yet feels so much more like the history we often read about, yeah, right? Where yeah. like, you know, whereas the job, you know, the job of a junior officer or something on a battlefield somewhere or in a, or in a skirmish somewhere really isn't, isn't as much about like, where do you put the guns? It's not about fighting you, at all. Right. right. It's, it's about it's, keeping it's, your guys from not peeing their pants and running away. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> yeah. And, and like how to like how to manage the local area and, right. and how you're to going get to get enough food for the next two days. Right. Yeah. And honestly, like, you know, those became really interesting dilemmas that you never see, you know, in hardly any war game. Uh, but but so I, I'm never, I, I've always sort of wondered like well, how someone you know, could the, go around and turn that into a, into a game. Yeah, well, there's two aspects of that. One is the what 
what parts of the wargaming experience of the of the true strategy of conflict uh, have we not had an opportunity to play sandbox in, right? And what, one thing you're pointing out is that, you know, what Baker was able to do there was to give us a sandbox we hadn't seen before, um, even if you'd only been able to play through it once and there yeah. wasn't this repetitive learning thing going on. And, and frankly, I think that's unity of command success is that gave us a way to play with supply that we've never really done before. I mean, other yeah. games have supply lines, but that game is Supply Line City. Yeah. And it really approached it in an Isolates interesting way. And and that's part of why that's so successful. And I think, you know, there are still untapped, uh, you know, areas there. I mean, we've talked on the show many times about places we think games just get systems wrong. Religion, espionage, morale. I mean... No games really do those things particularly well. Certainly, most games do them very poorly. Yeah, and and those... uh, morale they do. I, I would say. I, I think the. I think. I think. I think Sid Meier kind of cracked it with uh, Gettysburg. Uh, yeah. I, well, just the idea. Like, certainly, morale has gotten a lot more treatment in a lot more systems. Yeah. And there, there are a lot more explicit morale systems yeah. out there. And sometimes they work, and sometimes they don't. But they don't address some of the morale things you were just talking about, which yeah. is things like foraging for food and dealing with young recruits. I mean, all those things get abstracted very quickly and they they cease being that interesting once they're that abstracted. It just becomes a mechanic you have to learn how to manage. Um, so that's one component. But then the second component is um, that idea of learning from repetition and learning from previous mistakes. And, you know, there, there are plenty of games that have toyed with that. You can, you could argue that failure at a Panzer Corps scenario is that where it's like, we talked before about, it, it's like, well, once you learn the map, you know where everything is to some extent, that's what that was. It was learning the map, learning where everything is. Yeah. I kind of, that that's interesting because, because I kind of feel like, I was just sort of thinking about that myself is a lot of times, you know, something that comes up a lot on the show is that it's a, it's a problem and it can be bad when you fail and you don't know why. But I kind of feel like what that scenario and Steve Baker pulled off, it was really interesting. You would fail and you wouldn't know exactly why, but you had a strong inkling. You know what I mean? Like each failure gave you like a little bit of new information. It was this groundhog day type thing where like, what did you do differently that changed things? Well, and he was—he had a feedback system, too, where he wouldn't tell you necessarily why, but he was sort of giving you poker chips for, like, good decisions and red chips for bad decisions or something like that. And, yeah. and that, that sort of – but he wouldn't say it was a really good idea to camp in this field or it was a really bad idea to camp in this field. Yeah. He was, he was just, just going to be like, you made four great decisions and one boner. Yeah, and what was the – yeah, what was that bad one? Yeah, right. what did I do differently? What what changed? And, and so I, I feel like there – you were left with, you know, you were given enough information that you could really like, you had a juicy puzzle to sort of like think about. You had to really, you had to really figure out what you'd just seen and what had happened. Whereas I think where, where, you know, scenarios can really fail is that, you know, the, 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 the failure, there's nothing, there's no, there's no real principle to learn in the way you fail in a Panzer Corps style right, you scenario. Right, you just fail because you just didn't know something was there. Right. I, I feel like this was one of my big frustrations with uh, King Arthur II, uh, which is, you know, kind of a Arthurian war game, uh, kind of total war-ish. I, you know, I, it, made a good, it made a good first impression, but I, I re- really ended up turning on it. Um, 
in part because it's trying to create this RPG thing where you you encounter other characters, you negotiate with them, well, you, a, you do quests for it's them. It's a totally separate game. I mean, that's part of the the real that's problem it. with that game is that it's two games in one. Yeah. One is a mediocre choose your own adventure, and the other is a mediocre total war. Total war. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that is the real problem. Uh, I think wow, you just did my whole review in like you know, ten <laughs> words, so I just I fucked that up. Uh, but but no, but it was it was really disappointing because I'm playing that I, I'm playing that game and I'm thinking like. More games should do this. Like, there I could see that you could start to weave in elements of Steve Baker's approach, which is a little bit of, like, you know, a, a few non, like, non-tactical decision points that are going to have an impact on the battle. And I feel like that's something that a lot of people explore. And they certainly won't after you and Bruce beat the living shit out of Mark Walker, if even <laughs> suggesting such a thing in a World War II game. But I do kind of feel no, like... No, I, I, I agree with you. I think that that's, that would make... You know that we're a little off the topic of scenarios, but that would make these types of games so much more interesting, right? I mean, well, I think it is a little off the topic of scenario, but at the same time, isn't this also one of the one of the things that makes a scenario? What can, was it one of the things that can make a scenario really cool is that you can completely control for it. Whereas if you're dealing with like a big open ended game system that's supposed right. to like Civ Five, right? Yeah, Civ yeah. Five or War in the East, where you know over the course of like 300 turns you're going to fight the entire Eastern Front, and who the hell knows what's going to happen? You can't you can't control that too well. So you got to create a system that's really adaptable and is going to you know. It's, well, and and that's why it's so satisfying sometimes to play. Um, what's what's the name of the freaking magazine that has the game in it every time that I get the not the general. Um, People are going to kill me. Oh, um, I, yeah, I, I I haven't gotten it in years. I don't even know if it's still in print, but it it had no, basically it a chip based war game in it every time. It was twenty bucks an issue or something like that. I have a stack of them sitting over here, and even if I only played them solo, one of the things that was so satisfying about that was that the challenge here is you have to ship a finished game and a complete rule system and an order of battle and a map and all the chits inside this tiny little space and it's got to be under the production cost which was probably $4. And what ended up happening is almost all of those games are here is an incredibly narrow scenario and a rule set designed just to play that narrow scenario. And those were actually often very satisfying even if I played most of them solo because you you got to see a designer express his opinion about not the not not even something as grand as landing a particular beach in Normandy, but like here's the encounter with this platoon at the first pillbox, like that level of narrow control. So yeah, I agree with you. When you can make those kinds of control decisions as a designer, good designers can make really interesting things happen. By uh, in, in, so in those little one-off scenarios, you, they would break from sort of traditional war game patterns. And right, exactly. You like, don't you don't need to worry about it. Situation specific. You mechanics. can have right. You can have a, if you if you're only modeling a platoon, you can have a rule set for Private John. Right. I mean, he has his own stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I'm, I'm looking over your shoulder at uh, a, a stack of ogre minis. Yeah, exactly. Uh, again, that's uh, like, as simple as you can get. Uh, you know, huge thing versus a bunch of tiny things, and right. who you know, who's going to win? Just eminently satisfying to play over and over and over again, all by just 
tweaking the scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's one reason, you know, I think you were so excited for, you know, the Ogre reissue uh, Kickstarter. Oh my God, can't get here fast enough. Yeah, is it, by the way, I mean, is it going to be just like, is it just going to be Ogre with like nicer components? Yeah, or, I mean, there's yeah. slight rules. Are there it's other like, scenarios? Or? Yeah, yeah, there, there's new scenarios that have been written for it. There are new unit types, but for the most part, it's just Ogre. You'll, you'll be able to just take it out of the box and play Ogre with it. Yeah. And it'll go, they they're not making a new game. It is an ogre reissue. But I mean, this is something that we talked a little bit uh, about last week, and this is boy, talk about an episode where I wish we had Bruce around because uh, I imagine he he'll take issue with a lot of what we said today. But well, when doesn't he? when doesn't he? Yeah. Come on. But you know, we were, we were talking last week about how, particularly in PC gaming. Uh, there, there's sort of a resistance to doing like one battle. You know, why do one battle? Do a campaign or do a series of linked battles or something like that. But I, I, I do think like, you know, how many times have you played? Like, Ogre is not done for you. Ogre will never be no, done. No, not at all. But, but again, that's because it's more of a chessboard than anything else, right? They, and, and I don't, you know, I. I'm not sure why Ogre works, honestly. It is so simplistic in the sense that there's so few moving parts. It has a lot of randomness in it. You've got plenty of opportunity for crazy comebacks and one infantry unit just, you know, disabling the giant you know, Mark V that's crushing down on your base. I mean, it's just really satisfying, right? And and I think that the scenarios are, um, you know, because of that extreme asymmetry, the scenarios are just different and interesting than you see elsewhere, right? I mean, nothing is as asymmetrical as an ogre battle, right? One unit versus 30, 40. Yeah. But I, I just, I find that, you know, the, the same way like you, you you engage with ogre at that level, I sort of look at, a, you know, a few acres of snow or, or war of the ring. And it's like, you know, if, it, you know, if you set a, if you set up a good board, you know, you got a great scenario set up, you know, that's that's going to that, that that's going to exercise a hold on the player. You're yeah. always going to want to go back and and try it one more time, uh, even if you know the beats by heart to an extent. You you know you, you keep coming back. Like you know, yep. I think maybe there's a little too much fear of um you know familiarity. Like you, you know, like players always want something new. Like you don't you don't want to be repeating stuff too much. And I, I kind of think like th- there's a lot to be said. I think in in strategy game gaming in particular. For a bit of like familiarity and comfort with the scenario, I kind of feel like, you know, our first few games of, you know, a few acres of snow, you know, our first real game was probably like, you know, the fourth or fifth we played. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. And that's that's not a point I, I find myself getting to a lot with a lot of war games and strategy games. Um, so we're gonna leave it there, and I'm sure this is something that we'll probably revisit, uh, you know, at a later date. Uh, Bits and pieces every time. <laughs> absolutely. Um, like to thank you for listening, and as always, our thanks to Michael Hermes for putting this episode together on a, on short notice. Uh, this is kind of obviously uh, just two guys enjoying the tail end of their vacation, uh, just you know doing a little doing a little live radio. <laughs> um, one last thing, uh, as I understand it, the Idle Thumbs guys have either launched or are launching their their new redone site. A three moves ahead specific site should be following along very shortly. Uh, so there's going to be some changes, and we will get a newer and much hotter web space, <laughs> um, web presence. Uh, so look forward to that, and there will be links to that uh, as soon as it's live. I'll be gone for the next couple weeks on a series of business trips, and I will leave you in the capable hands of my regular panel. Good night, and see you in a few weeks. Good night.